Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. How's it going, Keithley? Uh, Long time to see. It has been a while. <laughs> it's going good. <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out how to reset up all of this to make this happen again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's good to have you back on. Yeah. Uh, so so what was breakfast this morning? You know, the, the, <laughs> I just finished the eating a banana. listeners want to know. <laughs> <laughs> a banana and coffee and uh, a little bit of toast with honey. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I that you know, the 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 Greeks called it ambrosia. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I thought that was like uh fruit mixed with honey. I think something. it is. I think that's actually what it is. <laughs> um no, yeah. Uh it was great. It's very nutritious. I feel good. Lots of carbs. I'm in there. Like a good a good American breakfast is just carbs. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's either just carbs or or it's uh you know a ton of protein and fat and no carbs mm-hmm. like you know if you do the classic uh you know ham steak and eggs or something oh yeah 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 i mean i i, I can rock some steak and eggs for sure yeah for sure that's one i've been i've been slowly not slowly i'm like a bad vegetarian at this point i i just that's how i describe myself as that i have really been endeavoring to like just stop all my meat consumption or a, a good majority of my meat consumption for a bunch of reasons, but I still cheat occasionally, especially if it's something like that's really good. <laughs> like, or if I'm at someone, if I'm, I mean, we don't hang out with anybody anymore. That's not a thing that happens. Yeah. But in the days where I would hang out with people, I would, um, you know, if they made some sort of something with meat in it, I would eat it. Because it's, it's not like a, it's not, you know, a, uh, uh, what's the term? It's, it's more of a, uh, a moral desire <laughs> than it is any sort of like health reason or anything like that. Yeah. I, I kind of live in a, a meat town. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a bit hard to, and, and also I, I, I do enjoy it. I, I will admit. It's good. I mean, here's the thing. Pork barbecue. It's, yeah. I can't, I can't quit it is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm addicted. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I have to live with that. That's the, that is, that is my guilt. I have to live with it. So I give myself like a couple, like one meat day, like a week. Well, that's um, good. I, you know, it's, I, I've heard it's important to, to cut down, uh, you know, not just the whole thing, but like environmentally, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, meat production is really hard on our environment. It takes a lot of resources. Um, and I, it's, it's probably that, uh, um, you know, even now you you think of things like, like, uh, raising chickens, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, or sometimes pretty unethical. Um, Mm -hmm. so so I can, I can understand that. Most of my reasoning for it is, is environmental reasons. Um, just trying to like, I don't know. It's, it's always so tricky when you talk about individuals doing environmental stuff, because right. it's like there's only so much of the needle that you can individually move. Um, and I had a real crisis of faith about that uh, back in college and uh, kind of just decided that I didn't care. I did not care if if it was immeasurable, my one small like make a difference thing. It was just something I was going to do because it was something I was going to do. And so it's still mm-hmm. something I, I try to do, even though it's, you know. In the big scheme of things, it may may or may not matter, but it's you know for environmental reasons and all that kind of stuff is is more or less why I do it. So, but yeah, I don't know. There's your breakfast update. <clears throat> classic, classic breakfast, bre- update graphics, classic breakfast <laughs> content. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So what's what's going on in your world lately? Oh, um, yeah, it's. I've been very heads down, very detached from uh, a lot of the rest of the world. Um, I am doing all sorts of stuff. It's it's all over the place. Uh, I'm doing a lot of embedded stuff currently. Some of that with nerves running on either Raspberry Pis or a board that has a raspberry Pi sock on it, but isn't necessarily like yeah. the quintessential raspberry Pi. But I'm also doing a lot of 
work on smaller microcontrollers. A lot of that's in Rust. Some of it's in C. I like learned Zig. Don't at me about Zig. I know about <laughs> Zig. <laughs> Zig is cool. I dig it. I, and actually, Zig is a very appropriate, I think, for the embedded stuff. Because mm-hmm. if you're dealing, you give up a lot of the benefits of Rust in an embedded context. Like a lot of the really, really powerful benefits of Rust, which really are like, you can't use uh, this block of memory and we can check that at compile time. There's a whole class of memory problems that Rust is stopping you from being able to interact with. But you kind of give it all up if you dump the thing on a single threaded, you know, single core M0 processor because you're just going to allocate all the memory up front anyway. <laughs> you know, you're going to just allocate a giant block of memory and be like, well, there it is. I'm going to interact with that. And yeah. So, so it's, then it's, yeah. it's really only saving you from things like use after free and, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the sort of like single threaded memory bugs that you get. Yeah. And there's no, uh, the ownership stuff is nice to know that you're not break, you know, you're not mutating lists out from under somebody. But all an embedded microcontroller platform is, is a giant bag of global mutable state. Yep. And so you have to, there's, you have to do a lot of work with Rust to like write wrappers around unsafe type things to the point where you kind of aren't really getting a lot of the benefits of it um, mm-hmm. in that context. I think like if you were to use something like a free RTOS or a Zephyr or one of these sorts of things where you did have a lot of tasks that you were trying to switch back and forth between, and then you could, I haven't done this, but you could probably bring to bear all of the usefulness of Russ's uh, ownership model for memory to, to greater effect. I don't, I'm not doing that currently, but I, I could see that being beneficial. Probably. I haven't done it, so I don't know. But <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a real tension I've I've seen. Like it, there was a project I worked on years ago that was um, leaning heavily on top of uh, DPDK, um, and it uh, which is the Data Plane Developer Kit. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, it lets you write um, network programs uh, using kernel bypass. Uh, so you basically get direct access to the the network interface card, mm-hmm. and it it uses uh, it does some some memory tricks, you know, to DMA the the network buffers into uh, you know huge pages that are user space uh, rather than uh, being you know passed into kernel buffers and then handed off uh, with context switches into the user space. So so you, you kind of get the opportunity to do some packet level programming there. Anyway, that that's the roundabout way to say that we were we were working on it in Rust and. Um, based off of a, a research project, kind of took that and ran with it. And what we found was uh, like unsafe code leaking up into the upper layers. And that was like a real, like what you're trying to say here, you, we, were, we were literally getting around the safeguards that currently exist. And that kind of like, you know, forced us to do a bunch of things that were non-idiomatic mm-hmm. with Rust. And then after I left the project, uh, they basically figured out ways to keep pushing that down um, so that you could use more safe stuff and have less unsafe stuff Mm -hmm. uh, leaking into the upper layers. But that took a lot of effort. Yeah, I think that's still to some degree the case. It's it's hard to even know. I've written probably on the order of... 50 to 100,000 lines of Rust at this point in various projects doing various things. I wrote a compiler. I wrote like a parser and and Lexer and that whole thing. I built a language at one point in Rust. And then I did some stuff at BR in Rust. And um, now I'm doing embedded stuff. I also shipped uh, recently a Rust NIF um, for our Elixir system, which was pretty cool. That was fun. That was a good learning. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done that yet. So, uh, but that's deployed out in production now. And we use that to talk. I think I can talk about this a little bit. We use that to talk to an HSM that we have. Okay. A hardware security module for those who don't know what that acronym is. And that was, that was fun. It was a good learning. There was a good library for, for dealing with that specific HSM. And, um, 
yeah, it was easier to do a rust sniff than to try to like figure out the protocol and then build it all in Elixir, which would be a fun project, but I didn't want to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Got a ship too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, I think, so I've written a non-trivial, I would, I would classify that as a non-trivial amount of rust code over the course of my life. And I feel like I barely understand rust as a language. And I am not, I'm not a brilliant person. <laughs> I am far from a brilliant person. Like I am not a super smart developer, but like, I feel like that should be enough time to feel like you understand that language. And I feel like I barely understand it. And that's, a lot. that's tough. It's a lot. Yeah. So, so with respect to, to doing stuff in Zig, like that, does that feel more like a, well, we have a better C or, or, or is it more like, yeah, it's kind of this other thing. How do, how do you feel about it? I think it's just a, I think it's a better C. Like it, uh, this is a probably not my analogy. Someone else has, has used this before, but it does feel like Rust is in a, is a better C plus plus. Yeah, and I and and that means everything you can take it to mean. Like it's C plus plus is this big old honking language at this point. Like I stopped using C plus plus at exceptions. That's when I that's the that's when I quit C plus plus and I was looking at it now and I'm like, what have you done? Like what, yeah. <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> I was blown away. Rust feels like that vein where it's, uh, it has a lot going on, like setting aside the ownership stuff, setting aside a lot of its compile time memory safety stuff, which is very novel and cool. All of the other things that are in rust, like just all the traits, all the traits that you need to learn about. And, and there's not a good way to learn about them, as far as I can tell. It's you just have to write a ton of Rust code and then discover that there is this trait that does the thing that you actually wanted. That you just needed to implement that instead. And then there's this other mm -hmm. thing. You know, it's it's constantly that. Zig does, in my mind, feel like kind of just better C. It's it's C that's keeping you from making some of the glaring C problems, and then kind of still getting out of your way. And, and assume and just gives you the tools to write safer code. Hmm. There are a whole class of problems that could happen in a Zig application that just can't happen unless you use obviously giant caveat unless you use unsafe and Rust, which is like not a yeah. super interesting argument. <laughs> like by and large, Rust is going to keep you from making those mistakes. It's going to force you to to not make those mistakes where Zig will let you make those mistakes, but it has so many, it has like the, the tooling that you need to kind of avoid them. You know, it has mm. the, Oh, what's the, what's the term for it? I'm, I'm forgetting it. I did the whole Ziglings thing, but I, I immediately forgot a lot about Zig. It has the thing where you, you can r r run defer stuff till the end of a function. What's that called? Okay. You, know, you know what I'm talking about? So, so, so similar to the RAII, deal and and lexical scopes um where where things things get get reclaimed at the end of the scope right and you can say you can say things similar to how you do in go there's probably other prior art for this yeah, that i just don't know about yeah. yeah go has an ability to say like okay i opened this file and i want to close it but defer that until the end of the program or the end of the function or do it in the case that something else goes wrong or whatever like it has right. the ability to sort kind of like a finally on the you know yeah. the entire entire function or whatever it has it totally has that vibe um it also has the notion of marking variables as is you know undefined and that sort of stuff which was always a a potential bug in c programs especially the c i, I like had uninitialized write. yeah like uninitialized yeah. variables for those of you who don't know in old versions of c you had to declare all your variables you couldn't declare them in scope Right. You couldn't declare them, you know, in your for loop. You can't say int i. That had to be declared at a higher at a higher scope before you could use it. And at least the version of C I used, which was like I think pre ANSI. K and R C. Yeah, yeah. K and R C. Yeah. Like like where you where you don't even declare the types of the arguments. You you write the arguments and then you write all the types of the arguments. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, it was godless. It was completely, it was a godless hellscape. <laughs> oh yet, my gosh. And yet, 
And yet somehow my my network programming teacher in, in college loved that style and I, made us write in that style. I mean, this was the same uh, this was the same code base that had a eight character uh, variable name limit maximum. Like you could not have a variable name longer than eight characters for yep. reasons. None of them were good reasons, but they just became PDP reasons. eleven reasons. <laughs> Probably right. Like they were just someone's style guide that they just cherry picked from somewhere else and did that. But but we also had to use Hungarian notation. Ah. So for again, for those of you who don't know, what you have to do is you have in order to you know make it easier to read the program, you annotate all your variable names with like special characters. So if you had a, a uh, if you have a um, like a, 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 a variable like um, network address, this is going to be the network address. You would use a specific, you know, you would say B for binary or you know C for character or C star for character or not star, but C A for like character array or whatever. Like there was like mm-hmm. magic letters that you would put in front of the variable names to describe what the type was. But we also had an eight character limit. So the majority of your of your variable name was like all this type stuff, because then you would end up with like, how do you deal with like the pointer to the like, like double pointers that point to an int? You have to annotate all that. So immediately half your variable name was gone. (laughs) (laughs) So it was so stupid. It was it was gibberish. Like the entire thing was gibberish. It was awful. But in any case, Zig solves that by actually making you say like, hey, I'm going to put something into this later. Don't let me use this until that happens. And so they actually have this oh, sort good. of magic thing. I, I think it's called undefined. I think they use the undefined, like an undefined keyword. And it might be a value. I actually don't know. I, I don't know that much about Zig, but it's it sort of solves like, that like problem. Ha- Haskell has an undefined value. Yeah, yeah. Which which you can make use of when you you want something that can be of any type and you don't know what that thing is yet, you can mm. like put it in as a placeholder. Yeah, and it lets you do some of that stuff. So, and that's a that's a common bug in C programs is trying to access memory that you haven't allocated anything to yet because it's garbage, and then you open up the security vulnerability problems and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So yeah, Zig has a bunch of tools like that that are runtime, but that are helping you just kind of write better C code. And on top of that, it's like it has a bunch of other niceties of modern languages mm-hmm. that C just doesn't have. So. As kind of a quintessential C person, like I tend, I Zig appeals to me on a aesthetic level that Rust does not appeal to me on. But it's also something we talk a lot about at work right now is all the technology choices we're making are bets. They're all gambles, yep. and we're hoping that they pay off. And I think. Rust is a pretty safe bet, given its current trajectory, how much it's, you know, where it is in the ecosystem, how many libraries are around it, the fact that you have cargo, you know, all this kind of niceties. It's like a pretty safe bet where Zig actually could be a safe bet and is definitely a a, a very reasonable choice for the embedded stuff, especially because it's interop with C is so nice. Not to mention the tooling, like being able to cross compile for basically anything yeah. and take any C code and like, hey, I want to compile that for this architecture that I don't have stuff for. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. So there's a bunch. I actually think Zig is a, an appropriate choice for the embedded work that I'm doing. Yep. Um, and I am starting to get into places where we really do want an RTOS like of some sort. I don't know that I'm going to pick Zephyr for similar kind of bet reasons currently but zig would be appropriate there simply because you could basically just write c and then use zig to compile it and then eventually like Mm -hmm. move into using zig long term but it's one of those things where it's like but it's still a bet and you're still and when you and right now it's like if you want to have a zig compiler you're building it from you know the git repo like yeah (laughs) (laughs) like it's in that stage you know i and i'm at a point personally where man, I want, I want boring tech. Like I want to make yep. boring choices. Like I, I don't have the energy to learn all this stuff right now. Yeah, there's there's always that trade-off of you know, are 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 you trying to make, you know, an innovative product 
or you're trying to make an innovative stack. And like there's a huge there's a huge spectrum between those two things. And sometimes, or maybe it's even like a two-dimensional bit, where like sometimes you're building a really boring product in the, you know, in the sense of the technical challenges you have to accomplish. So yeah, let's use the boring stuff that anybody could come in and work on. On the other hand, you might also be building a really innovative product that nobody's done before, and you need those innovative technologies to accomplish it. But I, I think most of our most of our uh, things that we tend to work on are somewhere in the middle toward the like the the boring end of things. <laughs> well, and it, but, it's yeah, and you you where do you want to spend? I, I don't know who to use this metaphor first, but where do you want to spend those tokens? Right. If you get a certain, yep. if, if there's a, if there's a number of tokens that you get, the Chuck E. Cheese style to spend on cool tech stuff, where do you want to spend them? And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you, maybe you go with uh, Rust, but you're going to use Zephyr instead of Free RTOS because you just don't want that much Amazon attachment. <laughs> and so you're going to pick Zephyr because it seems like it has a pretty good runway. It's backed by all the right people. It's, you know, seems like it's mm-hmm. it's going to be a ton of work and you're going to have to fix stuff because a whole chunks of it just aren't done. But you're but you're probably like, you know, that it probably has a good bet that it's going to like have a good long-term trajectory, right? Is that where you want to spend those things? So you and you only get a couple. You don't get infinite tokens. You get a handful right. of tokens. See, so yeah. And I don't know. At this point, I can definitely make the argument that uh, like Erlang and Elixir are boring, um, in the sense that yeah, they're, our they're teams... just they're just fringe. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, yeah. and this is the this is the thing that always you know puzzled me about organizations I've worked where they're like scared of Erlang or Elixir at, at, at adopting it. You know, it's really just it, it's for that like simple made easy like trade off thing mm-hmm. um, where um, it's it's just not familiar. Mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. but but it's it's like basically as as old as i don't know it, it's it's older than java right <laughs> like right right <laughs> right um, so so you're like well java is a safe bet well it's a safe bet because of adoption not because of you know right. uh, fitness to purpose um so so like uh, yeah i i totally feel that um the uh of course i i'm last couple of days I was reminded of a thing that happened um, in a previous job where a uh, new VP of engineering came in and, and was like trying to clean things up and, you know, looked at something that the CTO and maybe a few other people worked on, which was this ridiculous list of supported uh, technologies and languages. And um, uh, to, to, to bring it back around a little bit to, to, why I've been liking using Rust uh, at that job. One of our engineers had gone, okay, our memory, we, this app we're working on is an API. Um, it, its job was basically to produce these ginormous JSON documents mm-hmm. um, and serve them to another app, which produced the front end for our customers. Um, and of course, this is an Elixir. It's pulling stuff out of a Postgres database and it's a ton of records. And so you're looking at, uh, you know, using JSON or, you know, or Jiffy or any of these like Elixir or Erlang JSON libraries, you're looking at a ton of garbage created on every request that it serves mm-hmm. because it's just creating this enormous JSON um, blob. Um, and so uh, so our engineer was looking at how, how can I make this faster? Um, how can we use less RAM? And he's like, you know, hey, they've got these great like. Uh, encoding libraries in Rust. So why don't I just write a little tiny NIF with Rustler to her hip to Surty mm-hmm. and emit our JSON that way. And it worked great. We 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 tried it out. Um, the memory usage was like at least 20 to 50% less. Wow. Nice. Um, and and um, and then he uh, and so we put it in production. We had it production for four weeks and then like then this VP of engineering uh, also, by the way, it reduced our latency significantly too, because you know you're not spending all this time copying, right. copying, copying, copying yeah. everywhere. Um, so, so a VPN engineering says, says, you know, well, we're we're going to try to stick to our guns and you know, like stay with these, you know, technologies that we really know and support, and you know, in a in a three, four hundred person engineering organization, okay, whatever. Um, but like, uh, and and then this. The engineer who was on my team, he's like, 
but what about Rust? We're using that to encode JSON. And he's like, that's not supported. You shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, we've had this in production for over a month and our service is better. Like in the end, it didn't get changed. Right. Just to kind of like, you know, just ignore that. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, but, but that sort of, that sort of thing is, is like, um, uh, I don't know where I was going with that, except that, you know, it goes, goes back to that, that, that trade-off, like we could have switched back to an Elixir or Lang JSON mm-hmm. library, mm-hmm. but we would have made things worse. So, so there's still like times when you have to take that risky bet. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and try it right and see. And it, so, and so much of where you spend your tokens, the thing I think about a lot is you you mitigate a lot of that risk. But just having a, an entire team of people who's really excited about that technology, mm-hmm. because you have to live with it, and it's it's Fred's uh, the complexity has to live somewhere, right? Like, yeah, it may live in your head. It may live in all of the experts who you have who know that system really well and are avoiding all the pitfalls, just as a matter of course, um, because they know it. They're so invested in it, and if you're excited about it and getting invested in it, then that means a lot. Uh, it doesn't eliminate risk, but it certainly helps to mitigate it when you make those big choices. Um, it's also why the entire notion of VP of engineering comes in and like makes any sort of edict is, first of all, terrible management. And dude needs to read. Yeah. Uh, dude, <laughs> I assume it's a dude. <laughs> dude needs yes. to read. Uh, what is that? The, the management book that's basically like, yeah, as a, high, as a leader high up in an organization, you don't make choices. You just bring together people who do make choices and you ratify their choices. Like that's the entire thrust of the book. Uh, that isn't mythical man month, is it? No, there's like no. a there's like a high it's like high powered management. It's got some terrible okay. title, but it's actually got good <laughs> content. <laughs> I'll find the book, but uh, the entire thrust of the book is as a high. If you're high up in an organization, you don't make you don't make the choice choices because any choice you make undermines everyone below you and creates a a bad negative feedback loop. All it can ever do is create a bad negative feedback loop. And so in order to, what you do is you set culture because if you, and and that's true, you're setting culture regardless because guess what? People who align with your culture are getting promoted. Yeah. And so you, you know, you choose the culture you want. And then based on that culture, you bring together people and you tell them to make a decision and then all you do is ratify that decision once they've come to a decision. You don't you don't question them on that. You sort of bring them together and you just say, yep, if you guys decided that this is how it's going to be, that's what we're doing. And then you like charge for it. And if those people suck at that, then your culture is bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you have to figure out. And, and that works basically as a, you know, that works a pyramid scheme style. It just keeps all going down, right? The chain where the, each person is sort of bringing together teams and having them make choices. And then they just ratify those choices. That's the entire thrust of the book. So I, I think more people should read that book because I've had so many bad engineering managers and VPs and, and people up the chain for me that like decided to try to hand something down. Mm-hmm. When it when it didn't take into context anything that was happening on the ground, and it's also purely impractical to mm-hmm. to do that to to have the 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 meeting where you say this is how it's going to be, and and you know make a decision across teams, and then just make rules about it. Like it's totally impractical, and maybe you decide that you need to do it one time. Even I mean. Maybe you need the Bezos letter exactly once the the either start building services or get a new job letter, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like maybe you get one of those in your entire career at a at a company. And and you don't have to be a jerk about it. Sometimes you do want to say, like, okay, we're going to use gRPC or whatever, like you just we're going to pick a thing. We're all going to get together. It's going to be a big like several hundred thousand dollar meeting because we're you know going to get all the people in the <laughs> room because we're all meeting for three days straight <laughs> right <laughs> right and then at the end of that when we've spent three hundred thousand dollars to make this decision we're not going to change it <laughs> you know and it's like okay we are going to use graphql got it cool <laughs> like or whatever whatever the decision is i mean sometimes you want to do that because there is a when you can agree on those sorts of things you can gain a lot of leverage 
across teams by doing that. Everybody can just speak the same thing. Yeah, protobuf sucks, but we all know it sucks and we just deal with it, right? And then we move on with our lives. Yep. Like that's useful, but there is most of the time, you kind of just have to trust people. And if you don't trust people, why are they in a position? Why are they in the position mm-hmm. that they're in? And also, if you, if you don't trust people, is it because you don't trust them? Is it because you have control problems? Is it because, you know, is, is it based on evidence or is it based on your assumptions and your proclivities and your biases? And, and you know, if it's about you, how do you, how do you fix that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Cause that's also hard to, that's, that's also a thing that you have to be pretty introspective about um, and, and be honest about and say, I'm going to let, I'm going to let these people make their decisions and I'm just, all I'm going to do is work to get the right people in the room and say, y'all figure it out. And then I have to let go and let God, because I cannot control everything that's happening. And we dealt with this at Bleacher Report. And that was the, the backend team was only like 30 people. And we had all these teams trying to like solve problems. And at some point you just have to say like, let you know, go with the gods. Like I, you know, I'm going to let y'all sort this out. You need to talk to you and you need to talk to you. And like, I'll trust whatever decision y'all come up with. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a bad one, in my mind, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter. This decision y'all made and we're going to live with it. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was reminded of, I recently read this book. Um, I keep recommending it. I don't know if we like how many times I've recommended it on the podcast already, but uh, it's called kill it with fire. I heard uh, you talk about this cause I'm a listener now. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I feel so honored. Keithley. Uh, but uh, one, one of the things the, the author talks about is, um, you know, when, when there's a, like a big problem uh, and, and they're, they really want to solve it. Like the executives have buy-in to, to solving the problem. Sometimes they want to be too involved, mm-hmm. like, and they end up getting in the way. Uh, so the strategy that she has picked um, in, in previous situations is they want to be involved. So they want to have a war room, like, you oh, know, right. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so what you do is you get two, you get two war rooms and you put all the executives in a war room with a bunch of dashboards and things that let them see the progress Mm -hmm. and they hang out together and they, you know, of course, what she found was that most of the time they're just in and out of the room between meetings and like phone calls and things. Right. And so the war room is not that useful, but then you have the other war room so to speak with, with the people actually on the ground, solving the problem. Right. And, and that sort of like satisfies their, their need to be involved without getting them in the way of the people who actually need to fix things. Mm-hmm. Oh, and with so much of that stuff, you should is, totally read this book. It's I so wanna, I, you, t- you talked about it. I, I was listening to an episode and you talked about it and I was like, I got to get this. So I have it, yeah. but I'm like currently three books deep into my, in my queue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's back. <laughs> <laughs> this this is the pr- the problem after after the holidays, you know, because my birthday is like right after Christmas, and and I people get me books like mm-hmm. I usually have books on my wish list, and and then so you know come January I have like six or eight books to read. I'm like God, what do I read first? And I'll start reading a p- chapter two of one, and I'll flip to another. And this one, uh, I think you know, it kept my attention because it was easy to read, and also I was sitting there like nodding my head so hard right. like you know like yeah. some parrot who's who's into it you know <laughs> the cat jam yeah this is my jam <laughs> i love it oh no it's it's on my list i i'm gonna get to it i uh i i definitely feel that same <laughs> i feel those same pains so i'm just like oh these seem really good and i'm inundated with books and i'm gonna get there at some point but um yeah, no, it, it, it's so true. And so much of that stuff is so much theater. It's just, you know, get everybody in the room just so uh, like someone can appear like they're doing something. And like, mm-hmm. I just want to see fingers on, you know, I want to see hands on keyboards and like all that kind of stuff, like get it together and fix this. Um, it, yeah. It's the same sort of like toxic management that uh, says, well, if they're in the office, I know they're working. Like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, if they're in the war room, I know they're working on that problem. <laughs> yeah, it has been, it's been such a refreshing, but also very scary thing to go back to, you know, uh, I think I was employee 11 at this company, mm-hmm. maybe 12. And there's three people on my, on, on our current software team and it's growing really quickly, but like, it's been very there's so many good things that come out of a, of a team about that size, 
I mean, let's just start with like, you don't have to use Jira. You don't have a Jira, yeah. <laughs> you know, you talk to each other and you might have like a Trello board <laughs> or something equivalent to a Trello board. We don't actually use Trello. We use a, we use this thing called work streams, which is like a formalized Trello board for, for Kanban style work. Uh, it's great. Uh, but at the same time, I've been in big company land for so long that I have my muscles for my muscles for just sitting down and doing stuff are really weak. Really, really. I mean, it's scarily weak. Like I, I feel a little bit guilty in some ways about it. Like I'm like, oh man, am I still cut out for startup life? Like, I'm not sure, you know, because I've had, I've been in big company land where if you do anything without asking for permission and triplicate, you get your hand slapped mm. and you're in trouble. And like, I, you know, I was often called into meetings at BR because I would have built a library or like worked on a problem, you know, at night. Uh, the famous example is, is I built, I worked on regulator, which is a thing that I think right. people might be familiar with, but does adaptive and currency stuff. And I was fascinated by that because someone else at work was fascinated by it. And I got fascinated by it and I worked on it and I was just working on it on my evenings because I was interested in it. And then I kind of brought it to work and was like, Hey, I think this could actually really be useful and beneficial to us and totally got like, I was in like three different calls having to like explain myself to people. And they're like, you, you circumvented the process and you just, you know, you're un you're in, you, you know, uh, I had a, a, a dude who, a dude who had come in from Warner media went into a meeting with a bunch of VPs and said, Chris Keithley is a threat to this company. What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. And this is after, this is, you know, after all of the, um, uh, like all of our original people had gone on, you know, it's like that, you know, that company is, it it got sort of, uh, purged, (laughs) you know, broken up across Warner media and, and, and really brought into Warner media, um, proper. And so that was part of that whole, that whole thing. Um, but yeah, but the, because they were like, he's a, you know, he's a loose cannon or he'll just, you know, he's a cowboy just like does, does whatever he wants and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, no, I just like was excited. My bad. I won't, I won't be anymore. Um, and you get that trained into you a little bit mm-hmm. and then you come back and you're like, Oh, now you're in a situation where not only are you, uh, encouraged to do that, to just work on, see the problem and work on it. It's not only encouraged, but it is a necessity. Yeah. It's, it's required. And I think I'm bad at it now. <laughs> I think I'm yeah, real I, bad at it. <laughs> I, I definitely have similar feelings. And, it's and not I good, think Sean. my, no, it's not. <laughs> I, I think, I think some of mine is just, uh, having spent so much time over the last, uh, two years or so being, uh, being a leader rather than a, a coder. Mm-hmm. And, and like, you know, I, I have weekly one-on-ones with our CTO. Cause I, you know, I'm in a tiny company now. It's like 20, 25 people max. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's across all departments, yeah, not just that's engineering. The like, <laughs> that's the company. Um, and, 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 you know, he's like, yeah, Sean, we, we need the, the dig deep and comes out with something amazing, Sean, right now. And I'm sitting here going, <sighs> panting <laughs> right it's scary. like a little nervous <laughs> yeah and I, I mean he has trust in me and I, I think i can do it i'm also but it's also like hey i'm totally learning something completely new that i've never done before and and like having to exercise old muscles that are weak and it's a challenge it's it's tough i feel uh, do you have the sensation because i feel this a lot uh because i so i'm working with jeff wise who's such a great human being um mm-hmm. and like been on the show yeah and, and is a great friend and i i'm thrilled to death to be able to work with jeff but i also feel an enormous amount of like i don't know if i'm gonna i have to make sure i, I feel guilt almost where i'm like i don't know if i'm good enough to do what jeff needs me to do <laughs> like i don't <laughs> i really hope that his trust in me is not unfounded right <laughs> and it might be <laughs> I feel that feeling a lot of, of just like, oh, wow, I really hope I can, I hope, I hope that muscle's not so atrophied that it's just gone. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I definitely have that feel. And and also there's there's a situation at mine where we're we're trying to figure out what the next next major major iteration of our platform is going to look like. And some of that means like questioning the assumptions that were made over the last three years building this product. Mm-hmm. And and then like, but you don't like on the one hand, we want to try things and see if they work, like have prototypes and whatnot. On the other hand, there's just a massive amount of functionality to figure out is this even going to fit in this new idea of how we want to structure things? And, and that, that's, a, that's a big mental challenge. I suppose you're, in your situation, you're more building new things than, than trying to like, get to the next level of the product. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, well, it's a combination of both, but it is way more so. No one has any uh, attachment to yeah. what was done for the first versions of the prototype that 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 were built for this device and um so in a lot of ways we're really given a lot of room to do a lot of thoughtful work which is awesome mm-hmm. it's great we're not we don't have to meet a deadline necessarily because our deadlines are like yeah well it's gonna be like you know a year and a half to be able to like weld all this steel so you know it's <laughs> like <laughs> you know or whatever whatever the deadlines are it's it's like we're gonna have so much we have a lot of room to read and, and are encouraged really to be thoughtful and, and to find those balances between this is kind of what we have to do to make this work and also set ourselves up for success in the future but we're not building like the full thing right now so yeah and this great. this is you're doing embedded stuff right so this is like you're not going to f- very frequently be rolling out firmware updates every week or anything like that it, it's not you're not building a web app, right? Yeah. So, so, you, so you you need you probably need more time to deliver it, um, just so you can make sure you don't have to update stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, we're doing a combination of both. We have uh, we have the whole embedded side, and I'm I'm doing some of the embedded work. Um, our team is responsible for some of the embedded work, which is largely uh, built around nerves. Um, mm-hmm. which nerves is great by the way nerves is yeah. like oh man it's such a i think it's a so great, many hearts to frank oh god uh, frank is just yeah like he's the it's best just the best well and it's such a good time to do nerves i feel like too again if you're like me and you're a little bit like i can't keep up and i i need this to be boring good good lord it's, it's a good time to use nerves right because mm-hmm. so much of it's kind of figured out like a lot of the rough edges are, are pretty figured out. Anyway, we're doing some of that. That's a complicated problem because it's not necessarily even just a nerves. It's like potentially multiple nerves that need to talk to each other. So there's a little bit of that. Um, and then there's also a, um, there is a web, a web sort of component to it. It's, it's a, I won't say it's like a web app necessarily, although there is some live view in there, um, mm-hmm. which Totally candidly, that's been the hardest thing to learn is is yeah. live view. Like it was easier to get <laughs> stuff to compile for an STM32 than it was to yeah. <laughs> learn live view. <laughs> yeah, I think Amos and I have talked about that like twice in a row over the last two episodes. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to like, uh, you know, whatever. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things where I want the version of live view that's probably going to be out in like a year from now. Like for me personally, it's just a lot to keep up with. And I I, am still finding stuff that I was like, what even is that? Where is that documented? Like, I didn't know that was even a thing. And so, um, yeah, but it's it's a combination of all those things. Maybe I've just been in a position where I really hate to release anything without really good documentation. And and at this point, you know, live view being what, what, three years old now? Something like that. Yeah. Um, it feels a bit, maybe, maybe it's longer than that. Maybe it's four, but like, it, it feels like oh my there word, should it be might some be. effort there. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think it's one of those things where it needs the, it needs a Lance Halverson to come along and just write the full docs that really, the, the, the live view docs, uh, I think more than anything, the live view docs suffer uh pedagogically <laughs> you yeah. know like that's the core problem with learning it right now all the information you need is in the docs finding it is not always easy 
Because a lot of times, like the most important thing will be on some function that's on some module somewhere. And you, and like, you know, one of the most important functions in there is sigil H, which tells you what this whole heeks syntax mostly is, although it doesn't describe it fully. And that's in like a module called like phoenix.livecomponent.helpers. <laughs> you know, like, helpers is like your throwaway module, <laughs> like, not core, right? I literally <laughs> never thought to look there and had to search for it and then found it there. And I was like, how, what? That <laughs> blew my mind. Um, and then I just discovered something else about syntax. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the, the real problem is like, so you can find the, everything you need if you search long and hard and kind of learn where it all is. It suffers mostly pedagogically. Like it doesn't take you from nothing to expert or even like semi-knowledgeable. There's no path for that. Um, and that's, that's the thing that it's really missing, I think. But, you know, it took a couple of days. I figured it out. I have, a, I have an app that does live updates and syncs stuff across multiple clients and whatever. I, didn't, I don't have any PubSub cool. stuff. Like, yeah. I didn't use any of that stuff. Or it probably uses it under the hood. I didn't use it. I just used, like, PG, <laughs> which I hadn't yeah. used PG before. <laughs> that was cool. Got to use PG. So, and, and we, we, have a, we have a deployment setup that's really nice in that we can just use consistent hashing. So we have a static cluster we just chose that we were just like it's good yeah. we need we need to we need to be able to like serialize stuff through a process uh for reasons and um yeah like i can figure that out we can build locks and leases on top of some data store and you know we'll have these windows of unavailability and whatever and everybody everybody was just like it's just like run three nodes yeah <laughs> <laughs> So like the, the yeah, it's, it's amazing how config. far you can get with that. Yeah, <laughs> the cluster like, is in config.exs. <laughs> that's what it is. It's just that's that's how you run it. It's that's brilliant. Done. You know that that bit about uh, about the live view documentation, like having everything you need to know. I've had that same feeling about Rust documentation. Oh my god, is a perfect reference. Yes, but but like. So often the context of why you care about why this particular struct implemented this trait is completely lost. Yeah. Um, or, or, or it's like, well, you really, 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 really need to know what that trait means in all these different contexts to understand why this thing is there. And, and that's, that's been a big hurdle for me to. Oh, 100%. And I think it, yeah, the rust docs are, oh, buddy, they're hard. That's that's a. I love at least that they're really big on documenting things. Like oh yeah, you, you know people put warn missing docs or you know or deny missing docs in all their crates, so they make sure everything is documented. Mm-hmm. And like that's great. I love that. Um, I think that the sad truth of it is many people are just bad at writing documentation. It's tough. It it you it makes you want to slap everybody with philosophy of software design and be like, here <laughs> yeah. here's what you do. And that's why there's four chapters on docs because it's actually an art yeah. form a little bit. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where giving the correct amount of technical information that is required to really understand why you use something when you use it, what it's doing, what it's really doing, um, you know, that's, that's, that's hard. It's an art. And um, it's... Yeah, it, finding the balance between how do I write fluffy stuff so that you can use this and like get on board with this versus mm-hmm. how do I write this for an expert is is really difficult. It's They're really different audiences. Yeah. Yeah, and it, what what we found uh years ago when I was at at Basho, we had basically two or three different kinds of documentation. You know, you you had the the heavy technical reference stuff which is like this is how this works. Mm-hmm. You had the uh, you know, the introductory tutorial stuff, like how do I get this set up? How do I get my first cluster installed? And then you also had like the administrative documentation for the, you know, the the ops people. Mm-hmm. Like how do I deal with like ongoing issues? What are the tools that I have? And and those were written in very different styles. And like, you know, mo- most technical documentation doesn't consider the audience beyond a single one. Mm-hmm. Um and often that that audience is the same person who wrote the code, uh, which is not always that great. Uh, and then you get you get comments like, you know, the, this variable is named X, and it's like this is X. 
you know, is the comment or right. the documentation <laughs> on it. And you're like, okay. I mean, duh, but like, this is an iterator. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, okay, yeah. like, cool. This, this thing I, I ran into our code base uh, the other day, um, and it was clearly just a typo. Uh, but but it, like it made me step back and think once, uh, and it is like, well, we're gonna we're gonna process, you know, we're gonna subdivide this group of things um, into group A and group B, and we're gonna process group A first and then group B, and then. The, the the very next comment says process group B first, and then the variable is basically group A. And I'm like, what? What is going on? I'm so confused. Oh, um, ended up being that the code was correct because it worked, right? And, right, and the right. comment was wrong. But but those are the sorts of things, like you say, philosophy of software design covers, and it's so easy for to make those little mistakes and then completely confuse people. Oh yeah, yeah I. Hmm. Docs are docs are something I, I I mean I probably don't write good docs either. It's something I care a lot about, and then but I write I I, I write probably too much stuff uh, in in the actual docs, and I also write comments on top of that. Like I you know I'm pretty notorious for leaving real big paragraphs of text about why mm-hmm. a single thing is happening, but it's largely because like. I don't know my if I have any ability at this job for a long time, it's been a willingness to just spend a lot of time on it, like way more than I think the people who are really, really good at this job do, at least based on what I can. My observations of the people I really respect in this field don't seem to be working on it, (laughs) don't seem to have to work on it quite as hard as I do, (laughs) but but um (laughs) I don't keep a lot of this stuff in my brain. And so I have to, half these docs are for me when I come back to this later and I'm like, why the hell did I, oh yeah, why the heck did I do this? Why, why, what was I thinking? Like, what is this? Why is this like this? And then, and then you kind of can reframe and understand like, oh yeah, I needed to like jump between these two processes. Otherwise it blocks this thing and I want to optimize this. And otherwise it's happening in the call it process. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's kind of stuff you're not going to remember. So half of it's just jogging your own memory. Right. Yeah. And I, I um, this is a thing I've been trying to encourage with my coworkers because, you know, I've, I've been looking at this ginormous TypeScript project mm. and, and mm-hmm. like in an unfamiliar domain. And, you know, I'm trying to incur, you know, there's this, uh, you know, really senior engineer who's, who's amazing. He kind of leads the team in, in a lot of ways. And uh, he's going to making these massive refactors in places. and you know, for me coming back to an object-oriented language after being in functional land for so long, I get really freaking scared when I see those sorts of things because (laughs) I like, there's so much implicit nonsense uh, Mm -hmm. hidden inside objects um, that, that it makes, it makes me, makes me concerned. And, you know, I, with him and with, with everybody, I've been trying to say, Hey, can, can we write some, at least some code comments in these places. Right. So when we come back to it, we remember what's going on here. Um, like, why is this refactor important? Can you write why it's written this way instead of this other way, um, the way it was previously? And and that's, you know, that's hard. Like, uh, in the end, I'm having to do it a lot by example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on, on our new Rust modules um, that we're, we're writing that are being uh, compiled to WebAssembly, I decided, yeah, I'm going to set up the Rust doc toolchain, and I'm going to put those warnings on. And if you didn't document it, it's going to fail the build. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and then uh, we're going to generate the documentation on every CI build. And uh, you know, we haven't gotten to where uploading it somewhere yet, but but uh, maybe we'll do that that later. Uh, and and then then hey, like there's context around this thing. The context may be wrong, but at least you're forced to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it's one of the few credo rules I turn on uh, for yeah. my Elixir stuff is like I want functions to have docs and I want uh, modules to have docs or at, at minimum have module doc false, um, which is also, again, partially for me because I hide most of my internal modules. Mm-hmm. I actually, generally speaking, will try to make it such that outside stuff doesn't use anything like more than one dot 
mod module dot deep <laughs> into yeah. the thing. Like, you know, it's like, okay, if you want to use, if you're going to use this context or whatever we're calling it these days, this module, this interface, use the interface. Like you don't get to dig into the stuff behind it. Like the point of the interface is the interface. So that stuff, you know, it's like that stuff you actually document because you want people to understand it and or, or at, very, mm-hmm. at minimum you to understand it down the line right <laughs> i'm always trying to think of my future self like yeah God, what idiot wrote this code oh it was me <laughs> right <laughs> yeah oh so it's all that stuff is it's a, it's man teams teams are complicated teams are tricky they are helping each other out They're way harder than software it's it's so it's and it all it's all the it's it's where people get into this whole uh, software is people th- stuff you know it's like it is all the same thing it's all the team dynamics are changing the way that you interact uh, with all this stuff. Um, I'm excited to hear more about uh, all of your graphics knowledge stuff and all the WebAssembly stuff that you're that you're learning. I've been uh, I've always been fascinated by that uh, and and much like a lot of people uh got into programming a little bit because i was like i should make a computer game i like computer games that'd be fun and so i always was really interested in that stuff and at least a a kind of a theoretical perspective so it's been fun to listen to you talk about it and live a little bit vicariously through you and i'm like oh yeah i remember i remember reading the the what is it the uh the uh like black book uh the graphics book Okay. Uh, about like uh, the graphics optimizers handbook or whatever that thing is called, like the little black mm. book of like graphics programming or something. And it's like hacks to not yeah. have to check bounds on your, on your uh, window size and all that kind of stuff. It's great. So I, I'm excited yeah. to hear more about all of that. Yeah. I think uh, right now, well, we, we did have in the last couple of weeks, a, a big win. It's not, not in production yet, but our first like WASM module proved itself, which is cool. pretty cool. Nice. Um, we basically re-implemented some of the, um, the matrix, 2D matrix operations we're doing because we don't have 3D animation yet. We just have mm-hmm. 2D. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so it was like, well, let's, let's see. There's this little tiny contained space of code. You know, it's all TypeScript or JavaScript that we're, and we're leaning on some other library to do some of the stuff. So let's let's port it to Rust. We know that that like the the mathematical things will be more efficient because they don't have to worry about big nums and and oh, junk sure. like that. They're all yeah. just going to be you know thirty two bit floats. Um, we don't. That's that's the funny thing is like I, I think most JavaScript VMs now use sixty four bit floats for all numbers, mm-hmm. um, but except for like typed arrays and whatnot. But you don't need the 64-bit for most graphics. Like the precision right. that you get out of 32 is enough, which is really nice when you when you think about uh, how much space is that's going to take right. uh, in terms of RAM. But but we we were able to. It was it was actually a little bit depressing at first because like our you know somebody who was working on it was like running benchmarks and they're going, oh gosh, this is like four to ten times slower than the TypeScript. What the hell is going on? <laughs> Turns out that debug symbols turned on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're, they're <laughs> so you like build it in release mode, and it's you know twenty five percent faster. That's and you're awesome. like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, and also um, the binary is like four gigs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> you know that 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 is an interesting thing. I don't know if you you run into with your you know your SIG and and embedded stuff that you're writing, but um, one thing that we discovered is you know we're trying to profile this too to see what it's doing and why is it going slower well when you have the debug symbols turned off and it's you know release build you get like maybe your your profile will list maybe four stack frames and they're all anonymous mm-hmm. you're like what the heck mm-hmm. okay so i guess i can't really dig into this to see what's taking a lot of time right but hey no it's no longer spending 80 percent of its time in the global allocator <laughs> right <laughs> Have you um, have you tried out? Oh, what is it called? Uh, the the Rust version of uh, the of Cause the Causal Profiler. No, it's I don't know about this. It's cool. Are you familiar with the Causal Profiler stuff? No. Okay. All right. This is awesome. Um, causal is in as in like causal consistency. <laughs> uh, causal or COSL or something like that. You no. Know, so the way it works is uh and this was there's a great strange loop talk 
about this that I will I'll send to you. But it's the the notion is a lot of uh, optimizations can unfortunately be random because you know, you might change memory layout. Like your username is different than my username and that changes the layout of like how stuff gets into RAM and that can result in a marked speed improvement. And so one of the thrusts of this talk is let's actually use statistics and actually see if our if our improvements are statistically relevant or if they're within or if they're within noise. Right. If it's just noise, you know, if we if we try like optimization level three, is that actually better than optimization level two? By the way, I think one of the conclusions of this talk was like optimization three is basically noise over optimization two. Like it may or may not matter. And you and you can't really statistically tell. But another thing that they were doing is saying if we can find places in code, the problem with profilers is they show you where you spend all your time in such a way that it's like, yeah, but like you, but improving that doesn't necessarily improve the overall system. What you would like to be able to say is, you know, cause it's, it's analogous to like, uh, we made the loading spinner render faster, but it didn't make loading any faster, but we did make showing the loading spinner faster. Cause that's where we're spending all of our time is in the loading spinner. It's like, well, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so the notion is that they keep track of tokens at different points in the code. And you and you have to annotate, you know, your your okay. code with like where you put these progress points essentially. And then what it does is it keeps track of all those through all of its different profile runs and then starts to speed them up. It speeds up different segments and by and it speeds them up by slowing everything else down. Oh, okay. So, so it, it like injects delays. It essentially injects sleeps uh, everywhere else to figure out statistically speaking if you optimize this path you should be able to get this in this fold increase throughput compared to the to the previous one based on progress points and it also do things like figure out if you make this faster you will increase the overall duration the overall sojourn time of the function because again it's the the notion of like now you've got contention on a lock uh, before yeah. you didn't have contention on a lock, but now you have contention on a lock because you sped up that one thing. Now everybody's sitting there waiting and it takes longer. So um, they they used this and found like ton and like had a suite of tools that they were testing them on, like just like off the shelf stuff. And I think one of them was SQLite uh, and found all kinds of like theoretical performance improvements that actually mm-hmm. turned out to be real performance improvements when they went and implemented the performance improvement. And it would be things like, we're going to split up these locks into different hashes and then hash stuff out. Or like they discovered like that somebody built their own hashing algorithm that was uh, highly uh, uh, normal Biased. and not uniform. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> uh, so they like had all kinds of contention and stuff, but it just found it by putting in these progress points. Anyway, that's something to check out for the rust stuff. Uh, there is a rust okay. version of this and it is, it's, it's pretty cool. And I'll send you the talk because it's a great talk. That that sounds neat. And, and it reminded me of one other thing that we found, you know, trying to f- you know, find out our performance uh, things. One of our engineers uh, was looking, you know, at, ba- at big, like heavy duty animations. So we have some that actually um, are so pessimal that they'd like drop the frame rate of playback. Mm, okay. Um, and and so so it still plays every frame, but you like play it at a lower frame rate. Um, Anyway, uh, they went and like optimized out some of the most egregious things. There were some uh, plenty of time spent in garbage collection, and there were some things like we're using the the JavaScript, uh, you know, the splat, the object splat. It's sort of like an object. Copy oh yeah, where it, like the thing. spread operator stuff. Um, and the the spread that's the word they use. Yeah, and and on arrays, we were spending a lot of time in that. So they and and then there was one thing where we were trying to memoize a result. And ended up computing it every time anyway, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so uh, fix those those two or three things. Performance was still the same. So like, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things you don't know. Like you you have to have to follow leads, and you know I think it was great that we removed those. It's like, hey, fewer object allocations were probably going to reduce GC load, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But but now now you're like, ah, oh, well. 
didn't improve the performance of that really heavy animation at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. And th that's, th that is literally the thrust of this talk is you would like to know all of this before you get started, before you go in and start yeah. looking at this. And I think they use like, they do some queuing stuff in there too, of figuring out like, they use Little's Law to figure out like what the, what the average latencies actually are going to be. And that's how they like determine statistically if you're going to be within, if you're going to be making improvements or not. It's, it's, it's super fun. Um, and it might be germane to some of this, to some of the performance yeah, stuff that you're look. doing. That'll be great. So yeah, that sounds super fun. Anyway, I am, I am very excited to hear more, uh, more stories coming out of this. Well, we'll have, we'll have to do this again next week. <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it depends. I've got, we'll see. I, I, my schedule is now kind of a little bit, little, little bit gnarly but um but yeah today i i had some time and amos was flaking out and i yeah. was like i want to talk to sean i haven't talked to sean in a really long time well i'm really glad you did this is fun. always fun Let's do always it again. fun we will we will, we will try to get something on the calendar to do it again because it'll be fun sounds good cool good chat yeah. well you have a great rest of your day you too bud